0: okay so let's talk about the middle colonies or the mid-atlantic colonies this is a relatively short chapter compared to most of them it's only like six or seven pages now we've already discussed the characteristics of the middle colonies and noted that those would include new york pennsylvania new jersey and delaware that this would be a really great land for farming and that the region would end up being known as the the bread colonies or the bread colonies because of the export of grain. Mm. We also discussed that there were three main rivers, the Susquehanna, the Delaware, and the Hudson, that were part of the fur trade when you went more to the interior of the middle colonies. So, we've already discussed New York and that it was a Dutch colony. It had a little bit of Swedish colony involved with it. You end up with, you know, New Amsterdam, which becomes New York City. They have that uh, patroonship going on, which is kind of serfdom-ish. And that it's more of a, a cosmopolitan town... Because there's around 18 languages that are going to be spoken in the 1640s alone, you know, by the 1640s. Uh, we discussed the challenges, how New Sweden kind of encroached on the Dutch lands, and that the Dutch force led by Peter Stuyvesant would actually end the Swedish, Swedish rule and that those colonies are going to be absorbed by the New Netherlands. And then eventually, 1664, Charles II comes along. He is going to order the military removal of the Dutch from the New Netherlands. He's going to end up giving control of that area to his brother, who is the Duke of York. And, of course, he's going to change it to New York because narcissism. Then you have the Chapter of Liberties. And this was kind of their constitution y type thing. It's it's the steps to an eventual democracy. You know, <coughs> excuse me. This isn't a beginning or not a beginning. This isn't a full democracy, but you're gonna start to see some freedom of religion as long as you were Christian and you're gonna have suffrage for, for all landholders. But that was also, you know, one of its limitations was the fact that you had to be a landholder, but most of the land was owned by, like, a very small group. When James II becomes king in 1685, New York is actually going to become a royal colony, so it's going to be under the purview of of the English government. It's going to profit from trade with the Iroquois, and it's eventually going to start attracting agricultural workers. Now, New York was autocratic in character, and this is going to discourage a lot of Europeans from coming to New York. So, this is going to keep the population relatively low. It's going to slow down the population growth. In 1691 there is going to be a rebellion called Leisler's Rebellion, and this is going to be in response to the this autocratic nature because there's this remnant of the patroonships. There's going to be a lot of discontent because these huge estates are going to be parceled out to upper-class whites, and, you know, this kind of pushes out the poor farmer. The governor of New York, Jacob Leisler, And he governed between 1689 and 1691. So, a relatively short term, but you know, he did have some important impacts. One of those was being that he introduced some of the democratic practices that would end up staying in New York, and he's going to redistribute. Uh, some of the lands to the poor laborers. Now, because of this, the English government obviously is going to be upset about it because they want this to stay in the hands of the, you know, aristocrats. So, they want to remove him. Now, there's going to be a combination of both poor whites and the farmers that are going to be led by Leisler who are going to put up an armed resistance. And they're going to be inspired by the glorious... Revolution that was over in England and the overthrow of the dominion of the New of New England. Now, ultimately, the revolt is going to fail. Leisler ends up being hanged, and the parcelling out continues. But it's going to just you know demonstrate this this growing discontent, this growing disaffection of the lower classes against the privileged classes. So this is going to be you know reminiscent. Of Bacon's rebellion that occurred about fifteen years prior. There's gonna be other rebellions that follow in the eighteenth century, like the Carolina Regulator Movement in 1739 and the Paxton Boys in Pennsylvania in 1764. So speaking of Pennsylvania, it was founded 1681. This is gonna be by the Quakers because the Quakers in England are going to emerge during the mid 1600s. They're also known as the Religious Society of Friends. They're nonconformist in nature, and they're going to be more radical than the Puritans in opposing authority. They're going to refuse to re- to support the Anglican Church because remember, if you were not Anglican, you had to pay taxes. They're going to refuse to do this. They did not uh, pay their clergy. And they didn't take any kind of, like, oaths of loyalty to, you know, governments. They also made no deference to authority, authority figures. So, you know, obviously that's going to upset the, the autocratic government. Uh, but for the most part, they're actually pacifists. So, this is going to be a problem, too, because they're going to refuse military service. They actually want to advocate a passive resistance. They wanted a simple and democratic government because they want religious and civic freedom. They also believed in what was called the inner light, so not scripture, not some kind of hierarchy like bishops and popes and whatnot. And they saw that all men were equal in God's eyes. And the Quakers, because of their beliefs, because of their, you know, flouting of authority, they're going to suffer persecution. Persecution in New England and these other colonies for you know opposing this. So, in comes William Penn. So, in 1681, he's going to get this huge grant from the king. (coughs) Sorry, because the king owes his father money, his father has passed away, so now that money is owed to William. So, in exchange for you know not paying him back, he gives him land over in the colonies. Now, there are two motives for William Penn in this colony. The first is to provide a religious haven for Quakers, and the second is to do this experiment with liberal ideas in government, while, of course, you know, making some kind of profit. Now, he calls this his holy experiment, and he allows religious toleration among most denominations, denominations in Pennsylvania. Now, Pennsylvania is also going to become the biggest and best advertised of all of the colonies. They are going to distribute pamphlets as far as England, the Netherlands, France, and even Germany, because Pennsylvania promised cheap land, freedom of religion, and a representative government. These these general generous like land policies, uh, you know, this freedom to worship and the fact that you know regular people would have a say is gonna attract a lot of immigrants. And this is gonna include artisans like carpenters and masons. Now, because it was successful in trading with Native Americans in the fur trade and became a major producer of grain, there's gonna be a lot of success for Pennsylvania. You're gonna have Swedes, Finns, and Dutch that are all gonna become naturalized. So, you know, that's always a positive We've talked at one point that a, a conquering tribe or a, a conquering force, if you assimilate the people that you have conquered into your culture, they are less likely to try to rebel. They're less likely to try to rise up. And they're going to become, usually they're going to become useful members of society. So this is going to be in their favor. They're going to plan out Philadelphia very carefully, and it's going to end up being one of the largest cities in North America. This representative government is going to be established with landowners, ha- landowners having voting rights. There's not going to be a tax-supported state church like there is in you know, some of the other colonies. The freedom of worship is going to be guaranteed to all residents, not just if you were Anglican, not just if you were Puritan. There's not going to be in a, a provision to establish a military defense. Because, again, Quakers were pacifists, and they had this pacifist doctrine. And the Quakers were strongly against slavery. Again, equal in God's eyes. And they're going to end up founding some of the first abolition societies when we get into the Revolutionary Era. Uh, Penn is going to buy, emphasis on buy, he's going to buy land from Native Americans. And then the Quakers are going to end up fostering a really good relationship with them. In the beginning, but by the mid-17th century, the relations with, you know, your Native Americans is going to deteriorate. And the main reasons for this is one is the walking purchase. Like walking, as in I'm walking down the hall. The walking purchase of 1737. Basically, it's going to swindle the the Lenape natives. We know them as the Delaware. And we're going to take hundreds of thousands of acres from them without, you know, paying them properly for it. (coughs) And then, sorry, and then Penn's descendants aren't going to have this same idea about fostering these good relations that their ancestor William had, so it kind of just goes down the tubes from there. By 1700, Pennsylvania ends up being the fourth largest colony, partially because the Quakers were really good businessmen, And they were exporting grain and, you know, other foodstuffs as part of the Atlantic trade. And the other is because it attracted a large German population. And, again, this had to do with religious freedom and, you know, their their land policies. Now, the last two colonies we're going to talk about are New Jersey and Delaware. There's not a whole, whole lot to discuss with them. New Jersey was started in 1664. Again, it was a Quaker settlement of, you know... In the beginning there was an east jersey and a west jersey and these these two were going to be received from the duke of york who ends up being you know the future king of england and then in 1702 the two jerseys are going to be combined as a royal colony again and then delaware it was granted its own assembly 1703 Back again with the Quaker population, and it's gonna remain under the governor of Pennsylvania until the American Revolution. So it's kind of part of it for a long time. So the last thing we're gonna discuss is colonial society. Now class, like upper class, lower class, middle class. Most immigrants were neither at the top or the bottom of society. There were few class distinctions on this, you know, this frontier. Where many of the, the colonials lived. These upper class, you know, this was resented to a large degree. Unlike, you know, there was an there was an issue in Europe, but not like there was in the colonies with the upper class. Most colonists wanted an egalitarian society. So, these upper-class attempts at, you know, reproducing this European stratification did not succeed. People did not want to bring that over from Europe. Part of this was because there was way too many what you would consider to be common people instead of, you know, your nobles and whatnot. There was too many to be subjugated. And the emerging middle class is going to become increasingly influential. So, again, upper class doesn't have that power. And because of the democratic traditions in a lot of the colonies, this is going to provide a hedge against, like, this complete upper class control. Then you also have the rebellions, like Bacon's Rebellion and Leicester's Rebellion. Now, the upper class, you know, they were able to put these down. But it all, you know, it's always in the back of your mind of, hey, this... This thing is here. There's this you know, this could be a problem. All right, so the lifestyle. Most colonists were farmers, around 80% by the time we get to the American Revolution. And compared to the 17th century standards in Europe, America had a higher, higher standard, standard of living. Mm-hmm. Part of this was because land was cheap, and the other was because wages were about three times that of Europe. So you can also see that, you know, that's the... the the gold part of the, you know, gold, god, and glory. People were coming over because they were getting paid better. They were getting a better wage. They were getting land. They were able to make more, you know, out of their love. All right, so this last little bit is the three types of colonies, and this is by 1775. You will have a royal, a proprietary, and a charter colony. For the most part, most of the colonies are going to be royal colonies, all but Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. Pennsylvania will be a proprietary colony, and Connecticut and Rhode Island will be charter colonies by 1775. Now, some of these other ones, like New Hampshire, Maryland, South Carolina, New Jersey, Delaware, and Georgia, will start off as proprietary colonies, but again, by 1775, they will become royal. And then Virginia, Massachusetts, and North Carolina will start off as charter colonies, but by 1775 will be moved into the royal colony position. So, like I said, this is a short chapter. So, this is going to end our discussion on the middle colonies. The next we're going to get into is 18th century colonies, which I will upload later for you guys.